If you guys have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 23, it's where we'll be this morning as we come out of the dark. Uh, Acts 23, as you guys turn there, I want to ask you guys, have you guys ever found yourself in a spot where you were wrongly accused? Have you ever been called in and questioned on the behalf of something that someone thought you did, but you never actually did it whatsoever? I don't know if you guys ever been in that spot. I find there's typically two kinds of people. There's either those that in that very moment, whether they've done anything right or wrong or not, will absolutely fold and immediately just start crying and confessing everything known to man, all right? And then there's another group of people that will often push back and get feisty, get angry, and, and, and end up attacking the very person who's accusing them. I don't know in a sense which kind of person you fall, which kind of way that you direct or kind of fall. But I love this clip because even as I was walking this week through Acts chapter 23 to 26 this morning, more and more I kept thinking of this Seinfeld clip. Because what we're going to see this morning in Acts 23 to 26 is that Paul himself is going to come under incredible wild accusations, all right? And his response is going to be cool, calm, and collected, just like we see from Seinfeld, all right? But for Paul, obviously the charges will be a little bit more trumped up, a little bit more serious than just mail fraud. And the accusers themselves are going to be a little bit more serious and a little bit more intimidating than silly, uh, crazy Newman, all right? That's where we're heading this morning in Acts chapter 23 to 26. I assure you, as we look through four chapters this morning, I know some of you guys are wondering... Maybe I won't be eating lunch today as we have four chapters to cover, all right? If you know me, then you know I can talk fast, all right? Which I won't do, all right? But uh, we're going to, in a sense, kind of fly through these four chapters really at, at a 30,000-foot elevation and kind of skimming the top, kind of pulling a few principles out of it. Because ultimately what we're going to see over four chapters is that Paul is going to come under, come under the uh, court of public opinion, and he's going to be tried for his faith and his identification with Jesus Christ. If you guys were with us a couple weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 22, and we saw in Acts 22, Paul declaring, in a sense, his own testimony, his own story. And as he did that, we kind of said, and we looked at the fact that his own story was not just a story that was subjective and individualistic, but it was a story ultimately about Jesus Christ, who Jesus is, what Jesus had done, and how Jesus had therefore changed his life, and he was a new person. So even as Paul told his story, it wasn't just a personal story, but it was a story ultimately about who Jesus is and what Jesus had done. And therefore, just as Jesus' story had led to the cross and crucifixion and rejection, so Paul's story also would lead to rejection and to scoffing and mockery and ridicule. And really what chapters 23 to 26 are, are a response to Paul telling his story in Acts 22. And just again, as Jesus' story would lead to rejection and to ridicule, so Paul's story would lead to rejection and ridicule. And so what we'll see over four chapters, chapters 23 all the way to 26 this morning, is that Paul will come under accusation and under charge for his own identification with Jesus Christ. And ultimately what I want us to see and what I want us to pull out of these four chapters this morning is that Paul provides us an incredible model for how that you and I are not just to identify with Jesus Christ, if we have a relationship with him, but ultimately how you and I are to respond to ridicule and to accusation and charges that are leveled at us by a culture and a world, world at large. That's where Luke is going to take us in, act, in chapters 23 to 26 this morning. And as we jump in, actually before we jump in, I think for many of us, if we're honest, as we jump into these four chapters, I think a lot of us are going to struggle to identify with Paul in these four chapters. A lot of us, if we're honest, even before we jump in, talking about uh, ridicule and accusation and charges leveled at individuals because of a relationship with Jesus Christ, I think a lot of us, if we're honest, have a hard time identifying. And, and the reason why our story may be different than Paul's story in the book of Acts is not because you and I live in America. <laughs> the reason why we may not find ourselves under accusation and charges is not because we live in a country that has freedom of religion as an incredible value, supposedly, Right? The reason why you and I may find ourselves unable to identify with Paul in chapters 23 and 26 is because we may not be able to identify with Paul in Acts chapter 22. 
If you and I find ourselves in a place this morning as we look at 23 to 26 that we can't identify with someone who's come under accusation and charges because of their relationship with Jesus Christ, and maybe not because of cultural reasons, then maybe because of individual reasons that we have not as ourselves paralleled and identified with Paul and his own willingness to identify and publicly proclaim his own relationship with Jesus Christ. And so really, I think the question chapters 23 to 26 hit us between the eyes with is not if you will find persecution if you know Jesus Christ, but when you do, how do you respond? In fact, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul will say this, speaking of his own relationship uh, and talking about walking with Jesus Christ, Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That if you know Jesus Christ and if you want to walk with Jesus Christ, the reality is not if you will encounter persecution, but the fact is you will. <laughs> So the question is not if, but when. In fact, Jesus will say like this in Luke chapter 10, verse 16, that the one who listens to you listens to me and the one who rejects you rejects me. What Christ is saying in Luke 10 is the very thing that we're going to see evidenced in Paul, that as people respond to accuse and charge Paul in the public arena, their issue is not with Paul this morning. So we look at Acts chapter 23 to 26. People's issue is not going to be with Paul. It's not personal to Paul. The issue is that he's identified himself with Jesus Christ and people's issue is with Jesus. And so if you're willing to identify with Jesus Christ, if you're willing to say, hey, here is my God, here is my King, here is my Savior, I know him, I love him, and I'm going to walk with him, the reality is you will face persecution. And if you're not experiencing it now, it may be that you've not yet really publicly said, hey, here is my King. I will publicly put my chips on the table as this is my guy. And I think for many of us, we will get behind and we will proclaim things with passion, whether it's the newest app on iPhone or whether it's a, a new food that we're just crazy about or whether it's a girlfriend or boyfriend that we're infatuated with. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, we realize that people are not so quick to celebrate with us. People are often hesitant. People often are, frankly, will ridicule us. And so some of us begin to pull back slowly but surely, not wanting to offend people when really the issue is we don't want to be embarrassed. And so really where 23 and 26 is going to take us this morning is not challenging us to get out there. (laughs) I want to challenge you guys there because if you're not willing to get out there, then what 23 to 26 provides is not helpful to us. 23 and 26 will provide a model for you and I when we've stepped out and when accusation and charges have come at us. That's ultimately where Luke is going to take us as we look at Paul's example this morning through these four chapters. And the first thing I want you guys to see about Paul's example is this. The one thing I love about Paul's example as we kind of fly through this, uh, these four chapters at a high level is that he's going to be a guy who's going to remain poised. Accusation charges are going to come flying at him from all angles at all times from all kinds of people. And they get crazy and they get mudslinging and they get dirty. And yet no matter what comes, no matter how long this process takes, he remains incredibly poised, incredibly patient, incredibly calm, cool, and collected. It's incredible. In fact, I want to give you guys, uh, uh, since we're not going to walk through these four chapters verse by verse, I want to give you guys, in a sense, a 30,000-foot elevation view of these four chapters. I want to kind of give you guys a sense of the flow of the narrative as Luke will take us through these chapters. And, and ultimately, what you're going to see as we kind of walk through this process is that you're going to see Paul passed from one judge to another through a legal process in which he is going to come under accusation and charges. And in a sense, he's going to get passed around like a hot potato or like a good white elephant gift that just gets exchanged, passed back and forth all the time, right? That's what Paul is going to feel like as he walks through these chapters. Even just this past Christmas, someone at one of our gift exchanges provided us a donkey on a swing, all right? 
awesome white elephant gift, which meant we reused it the very next party, right? Uh, even a few years ago when we got married, someone had provided for us, not on our registry, all right, but they had provided us two hand-carved Indian uh, chief and a princess, all right? And the moment that you go off someone's registry, let me just say, is you guys have friends getting married and you want to get creative and personal, all right? The moment you go off the registry is likely the moment that you expose yourself to a gift that could become a white elephant gift, all right? And so that's what we did with these little Indian carved things, all right? They were perfect for that first Christmas as a married couple because these things were awful, all right? So your creativity may be someone else's white elephant gift. Just take that to note, all right? So but that's what Paul's going to have happen to himself. He's going to be like a white elephant gift. He's just going to get passed around from one judge to another in a, in a process that will go through four chapters, all right? Let me give you guys a kind of a 30,000-foot elevation view of this. Here's kind of what happens in chapter 23. In verses 1 to 11, Paul will be in Jerusalem and he will stand charges in front of the Jewish council there in Jerusalem. A group of Sadducees, Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, it was the officials, so to speak, the high priests, those that were the uppity ups in the Jewish world in Jerusalem. He will stand charges in front of them. That scene will get so tenuous that they will actually want to actually kill him. And so uh, military officials will step in to protect Paul because he was a Roman citizen. And he's actually going to be, in the, in the end of chapter 23, transferred to a place called Caesarea, all right? There in Caesarea, he's going to come under and be brought before Governor Felix in chapter 23 and 24. He's going to stand before Felix. Felix will be succeeded a couple years later by a guy named uh, Festus, all right? Keep thinking of Festivus for the rest of us, all right? But Festus, all right? Uh, Seinfeld is kind of in my head, all right, this morning. Uh, he will stand before Festus, all right, who's also a governor who will succeed Felix. And then after Festus, he'll be passed to King Agrippa. And after King Agrippa in chapters 25 and 26, he'll eventually appeal and be passed on to Caesar in Rome in chapters 27 and 28. So a process unfolds here beginning in chapter 23 that he will stand trial and he's going to be passed around like a hot potato, all right? Uh, eventually from the Jewish council, then to Felix, then to Festus, then to Agrippa, and eventually to Caesar, all right? Incredible trying process, all right? I, I thought of this in many ways, thinking uh, personal experience. If you guys have ever had the opportunity where you had some discrepancy with your cell phone bill, right? Uh, maybe it was the number of minutes that you were charged. Maybe it was your bill itself. Maybe it was the number of text messages that were recorded. You thought, there's no way I texted a thousand times, but you did just last week, right? Um, and so, you know, you call in, and how does that process start? The process starts by being on a computer animated system that you're spending 10 minutes just trying to navigate to figure out how you can lodge your complaint and your issue. And then eventually you get fud up and frustrated with a computer animated system. So you eventually hit zero asking for the, a human operator. You finally get a, a human person who really doesn't know anything about cell phones or anything about your situation, though you've told them the whole story. And they finally figure out how to route you to someone else, right? By this time, you're getting a little bit impatient and a little bit frustrated, right? And so they've passed you now to the expert in that arena who you then realize really has no power whatsoever, right? And so you've spent another 10 minutes explaining your situation, your issue, asking for it to be resolved when you realize you have to appeal to a higher authority in that specialty, right? Who you then find out is just a middle manager, right? Who has more authority, but not enough authority to really resolve your issue, which means you spend another 15 minutes waiting for that person, then explaining your situation. And then you have to then still end up requesting a even higher authority who finally has the authority to resolve your situation. But it might've taken an hour. It might've taken two hours. And by the end of the process, you're absolutely peeved and frustrated, right? Why? Why are you so frustrated as you're passed around like a hot potato? Because it doesn't seem like anyone seems to see your situation, thinks that you're significant enough to put the person with clout in front of you, right? I think as Paul is passed around from one authority to another, it would have been very easy for him to get frustrated just like you do just with one phone call issue with a cell phone company, right? You just want to strangle somebody, right? Maybe it's just me, right? <laughs> but you get so frustrated, right? 
Because the person who has authority, the person who really needs to see your issue and resolve it, you can't even get in front of. That's exactly what's happening with Paul. But why does Paul respond so differently? I think from the very outset of this process, God comes to Paul and gives him a a sense of encouragement that God is watching and God is in control of the situation. God will tell Paul in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, if you have your Bible, uh, I'll put it up here as well for you as we kind of fly around these four chapters. Uh, God tells Paul, it says, take courage for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must also witness at Rome also. God steps in and tells Paul at the very early outset of this process, hey, eventually what you're doing here in Jerusalem, I'm going to have you doing all the way to Rome. And what Paul might have realized as well, that this would be a very painful process. It would take an incredible lot just to get to Rome. So he's going to be passing on like a hot potato uh, from one judge, one authority with diminished power to another authority with heightened power over and over again until he finally gets to Caesar by the end of the book of Acts. But why does he stay so calm? I think in the midst of circumstances that he could not control, he realized that there was one who did see his situation and there was one who was in control of it. I think you and I get so frustrated because the people with power, we cannot get in front of. And so we feel helpless and our circumstances feel like they're out of control. I think Paul realized because of God's encouragement to him that, hey, God was watching his situation. God was not blind to what was going to happen. And then God was working it for a purpose and moving it to an end climax, to an end game that he ultimately intended and that he was very much in control. I want to ask you this morning, as you kind of fly through the rest of the spring semester, what are those circumstances right now that seem out of control to you? What are those situations right now for you that just seem absolutely maddening that you want to just strangle someone, right? And in the midst of that scenario, in the midst of that situation, do you truly believe that God is in control? Do you truly believe that God can see what's happening? Or do you think that he's just busy off with the universe and he can't tend to your business, Paul's going to get an incredible moment here with the Lord himself that'll come to him early in the process and say, hey, hang with me. I'm doing something, right? Paul gets that opportunity. Sometimes you and I don't get that opportunity, if ever, right? In the midst of our circumstances that seem just as trying and just as difficult. But what I love here in the midst of Paul is coming under charges and accusations for his relationship with Jesus Christ is that he gets a reminder that God does see and that God is in control. And if God is in control and God can see the circumstances that Paul was in, then he can see the circumstances that you're in as well. And that it is not outside of God's witness. It is not outside of God's purview, but he sees and he cares and he's in control. And if you can grasp that, I think it gives you an ability to remain poised, to remain calm, cool, and collected in the midst of that moment. Otherwise, it gets maddening, it gets frustrating, and you just want to lose it, right? I think that's that's what's necessary for you and I. But for Paul, it wasn't just that he's going to be passed around like a hot potato. But I think also for Paul, we're going to see that this process is going to take a long time, all right? It's going to take a long time. I want to kind of fly you guys through some of the the verses here to kind of show you guys how this process actually unfolds for Paul. I want you guys, if you're with me, uh, look at verse chapter 24, verse 1, all right? Uh, In 23, Paul stands before the Jewish council. He comes under accusation. A plot is hatched to try to kill him. Uh, The commander of the army finds out about it, and they move him to Caesarea. And so he's gone from Jerusalem. He's been moved to Caesarea where he's waiting to be heard. And notice chapter 25, verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. So Paul has to get transferred to Caesarea. Then he's going to wait another five days just for his accuser to show up to bring his case against him. All right. So he's going to wait five days just for this one part of the process. Notice also the end of chapter 24. He's going to stand before Felix in 24. And in the end of 24, notice how Luke will kind of sum up the whole encounter with Felix beginning in verses 24 to 27. Notice what Luke tells us. 
But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla. So five days before the high priest shows up, then there's, a, then there's some more text that kind of explains the narrative that this process is getting delayed and delayed and delayed. And then 24, some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewish and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control and judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present. And when I find time, I will summon you. And at the same time, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. <laughs> Holy moly, right? The dude's waiting days and days as he's been passed on to Caesarea. And then over the next two years, he stands before Felix and he's just treated like a yo-yo, right? He's just brought out to be entertained then sent back. Brought back out for conversation, sent back. Brought back out for more conversation, then sent back for two years. And his case goes nowhere. <laughs> in fact, the guy who finally succeeds in wanting to do the Jews a favor, not wanting to upset the Jews, he leaves Paul in prison. And the next guy comes, Festus, and the whole process starts all over again. He gets nowhere in two years, all right? Notice what happens next uh, in chapter 25, verse 6. Now we're before Festus, chapter 25, verse 1. Festus then, having arrived in the province three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So basically, Felix has been holding court with Paul. It's just kind of been private conversations. Festus comes in behind. Felix takes charge of the office, not knowing the whole issue. And so Festus, a few days later, then takes off and goes up to Jerusalem to hear Paul's accusers, because it's such a large issue. Spends eight to ten days up there, apparently, according to verse six. After he'd spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. All right, so Paul is back at square one with a new guy, a new guy who a few days goes up to Jerusalem, spends eight to 10 days with Paul's accusers, comes down, uh, and then the next day finally sits down and talks with Paul, right? A process that is just going on forever and ever. Notice verses 13 and 14 in chapter 25. Now in several days it elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. And while they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. So this process goes on, and finally uh, Festus uh, basically passes his case on to a higher-up guy named King Agrippa. King Agrippa comes down, waits a few days, finally hears Paul's case. Paul's back at it again, just like you and I are with a cell phone carrier explaining our case to a higher authority, all right? Uh, and this process goes on and on, all right? The, the, the story with uh, King Agrippa kind of comes to a conclusion where basically King Agrippa says, if you had not appealed to Caesar, Paul, I would have probably let you go, <laughs> But you've appealed to Caesar, so now your case is going to go on to Caesar. <laughs> it could have been reconciled here with Agrippa, possibly. But because Paul had appealed to Caesar, because that's what God was really moving Paul to do, his case is going to move on to Rome and to Caesar. What we find in chapters 27 and 28, as the story unfolds, is that Paul will be passed on to Rome. And on the way to Rome, he will suffer shipwreck at an island named Malta. It'll take a few weeks to get to Malta. He'll suffer shipwreck. He'll be stranded there for months, all right? By the time he's rescued and brought to Rome, we find at the end of the book of Acts that he will be waiting in Rome for two years and he still hasn't gotten in front of Caesar. <laughs> all right. Think about this process, all right? You and I burn a lunch with a cell phone company and we are just fumed and want to just strangle somebody, all right? Paul's waited days, then weeks, then months, and years, and his case has to still be presented to the highest authority. <laughs> Man, to be passed around like a hot potato... And to be a part of a process that has no quick resolution. We're talking years here where he's just in a holding pattern. And yet he doesn't seem to get frustrated. He remains calm, cool, and collected. 
When I was a student in your shoes, when we would register for classes, all right, uh, I don't know how you guys do it now, but we literally had landlines in our dorm, all right, which I know kind of dates me, all right? And we would have to call a, a phone number to get in uh, to register for classes, all right? And, and what, would have, what would happen is that thousands of students, the moment the registry opened up to get into, thousands of students at one time would begin to call all simultaneously, all right? And there were like five to ten lines that you could get in. So you had thousands of students calling at the same time to get in, all right? Which meant you spent at least an hour minimum hitting redial hundreds of times, all right? Getting a busy signal, if you know what that sounds like, all right? Uh, getting a busy signal. And it, you'd be waiting and waiting and waiting, and you would get so frustrated, right? Meanwhile, as you're waiting, you can still watch the classes that you wanted to register, and you're watching them just fill up, <laughs> all right? So you're absolutely just want to just strangle somebody again because you can't get in. And as you're waiting, frustrated and impatient, your classes are filling up and you really legitimately are thinking, I don't know when I'm going to graduate (laughs) because the classes I need, I seem to not be able to get into anymore. So this does not look good, right? And so your graduation date keeps getting passed on, pushed on further and further in the future, right? So not only are you getting frustrated and just maddening frustrated, right? But you're now getting a little depressed because you don't understand how your future is going to shake out whatsoever because you really can't get registered. But eventually you would finally get registered and you, what you had to do is you had to have three or four different scenarios of classes because by the time you got in, uh, two of the five classes you may need are gone, right? And so in those moments, you really begin to, at some point, begin to call out to God, God, please, right? Let me get in. I need to graduate, Lord, please, all right? And I think for Paul, as he's waiting, I think not just getting passed from one authority to another, but waiting and waiting, I think it's not just likely that he could have gotten impatient, but I think it's likely too that he could have begun to slowly but surely begin to doubt that God was going to bring about what he had promised. As the process went on and on and on. I want to ask you guys, in the midst of those very circumstances that you may feel like God does not see, as it goes on and on and it seems unresolved and the very thing that you're praying for, the very thing that you're hoping for, seems to not be coming about. Are you beginning to doubt that God sees it? And are you beginning to doubt that God cares? And are you beginning to doubt that God can do anything about it? It's not just an issue and test of patience, right? But then he even begins to toy and mess with your hope, (laughs) your sense and your confidence of the future, your confidence that God will bring about what he's promised in certain things. Maybe for you, it's graduation, right? Maybe for you, you're a graduating senior and you're wondering if you'll ever have a job, you'll ever make a living, or whether you're living with mom and dad the rest of your life. (laughs) That's fun, right? Um, Maybe for you, you're wondering whether you're going to be perpetually single for the rest of your life. Maybe you're graduating, maybe you're in your junior year, maybe you haven't had a date in college yet, and you're wondering, God, (laughs) what do you have in store? Because this is not what I signed up for, right? You're beginning to doubt that God sees, maybe you're beginning to doubt that God can do anything about it. And as you wait, and as you wait, and it's not even your identification with Jesus that's brought uh, criticism, it's just circumstances themselves, and you're wondering, what in the world do I do? For here, in this particular example, for Paul, it's circumstances that he was not in control of, but he had to trust that God was in control, that God could see, and that God was still working, even when the timetables were different. And for Paul, it all came because he had identified with Jesus Christ. I think for those of us who will proclaim our faith publicly and say, hey, we know Jesus, we want to walk with Jesus. And when skepticism and criticism comes, it's so easy to pull back and to retreat. It's really what the book of Hebrews is all about. And people who have stepped forward to say, hey, I know Jesus and a culture that has landed on them to squash them. And the question is for the book of Hebrews, will they pull back or not? Same is true for you and I. As we identify with Jesus Christ, the pressure gets hot. People begin to scoff. People begin to ridicule. People begin to misunderstand us. And the question is, will you stay under that pressure or will you pull back because it's easier? The very idea of perseverance is the concept of remaining under pressure. 
To persevere means to be willing to remain under pressure when it's hot, when it's difficult, when it's tough. To not persevere means to remove oneself from that pressure because it's easy and the pressure's off. It's interesting because I think for many of us, as things don't seem to be coming about in the timetable or the pace that we want, we begin to ask God, what are you doing? What is it that you intend? What is it you're wanting to do in my life? I think Paul gives us a little insight into that in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 5, when Paul says this. We also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. That in the midst of those difficulties, in the midst of that pressure, what happens is we remain in it and remain under it, willing to trust the Lord, willing to hang with the Lord that he's wanting to do something in our lives and through our lives, is that he's beginning to grow within us a stamina to endure, a character that is refined and a hope that is purified. And so as you sit there in those circumstances, you're wondering, what is God doing? Where is God? Does God see it all? Is he even trying to accomplish anything at all? Or is this just random? I think Romans 5 is an incredible encouragement, though, that God does see and that God is at work. And that God is accomplishing something through the circumstances that you are enduring in your life and in others. For Paul here in Acts 23 to 26, what God is going to do is he's going to move the gospel from Jerusalem, eventually to Caesarea, uh, through these uh, governors, and eventually to Rome, where eventually from Rome it will go to the ends of the earth. You guys remember when we kicked off Acts all the way back in the fall, the first week of August, we said that what the book of Acts is all about is seeing the gospel go from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And as God moves the Apostle Paul from each of these authorities eventually to Caesar, and in Rome, from Rome, the gospel will be able to reach wider and further than it would have ever from any other location. And so as Paul waits... And as Paul trusts God, God is doing something with the greatest message that one could have ever heard. That is the gospel of good news, Jesus Christ. That he died and then he was resurrected. And Paul was willing to endure for that message. And yet as Paul did that, as he identified with that message, the reality is <laughs> it was an ugly process, all right? It wasn't just that he got passed around like a hot potato, but it was also that that process took a lot of time and that he got criticized immensely and it was ugly. I want you guys just to notice from one of the, the passages here, the kinds of insults that hit him, all right? I think this is frankly kind of humorous, all right? Look at chapter 24, verse 5, all right? Notice as his accusers come before authorities, notice how they label and how they describe and how they sling mud as they reference Paul. Verse 5, chapter 24, for we have found this man a real pest. (laughs) A real pest, right? What? All right, I I can't imagine this kind of like the same terminology of a mosquito, right? He's he's small because we don't want to really give him any kind of significance, all right? But he can absolutely ruin a good picnic, a good walk on the beach, a good romantic stroll with your lady, right? Completely can ruin everything, all right? And that's exactly what Paul is doing. In fact, notice how widespread Paul's destruction is, apparently. Uh, uh, Verse 5 again, he's a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the whole world, Right? This little pest, this tiny little mosquito is ransacking all of uh, the world in which Judaism sits, all right? And so the Jewish council, the Jewish accusers are absolutely upset. And then they're going to confuse him and and argue that he's not just a mosquito, but he's also a crazy carny. Notice what he says next. Verse 5, and he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, all right? This little cult, this little group of crazies over here, nothing more than a little carny, all right? Just a crazy dude, all right? That's who Paul is as they describe him, all right? Notice what he says in verse 6, then not just who he is and how they label him, but notice how they attribute his actions. And he's even tried to desecrate the temple. When I read that in verse 6, obviously I know it's with respect to theological teaching, all right? But it's as if they're saying he's walked into the temple and he's just urinated in open public, right? <laughs> Completely just defecated in the temple, all right? It's to that kind of colorful language that they're saying, and it's absolutely preposterous and it's absolutely ridiculous, Right? This is how he's labeled. This is how his actions are attributed. And what do you think Paul will do? 
a man who is calm, cool, and collected, Paul is going to eventually speak and he's going to eventually respond. And I'm curious if you guys think, how do you think Paul will respond? I think many of us may think that he may respond in a Christ-like manner, just as Jesus did, and in the midst of his accusers, not even open his mouth, right? Many of us think of Isaiah 53, chapter, chapter 53, verse 7, in which Isaiah says, Like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Many of us think that's exactly what Christ did, so many of us think that's what Paul will do. And what I love about what Paul does is it's quite a bit unexpected, because as Paul will come under accusation, he's not just silent. He's poised, he's calm, cool, and collected, but he doesn't just roll over and play dead, all right? Paul's going to push back, but he's going to push back pretty strategically. I want you guys to notice the discussion in chapter 23, beginning uh, in verse 1. I want you guys to notice really how this discussion goes as he comes before Governor Felix. Uh, Notice what happens as he comes under accusations. Chapter 23, verse 1. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth, right? He says, hey, here is my heart. I'm, I'm a pure in conscience. And they, the high priest orders him just to be hit across the mouth, all right? Verse three, then Paul said to him, check this. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> I bet you didn't expect Paul to do that, right? Uh, it just absolutely pushes back, right? Because, ah, no, 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 no. And, and notice what he says as he goes, why? Notice why he pushes back, though. He's not just name calling back. Notice what he does. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? What is Paul doing here? Is Paul pushing back just to defend self? No, 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 no. What Paul is doing here in the midst of this one moment here in 23 in front of Felix is as his accusers come at him, they come at him with an argument that he's going to push back on because the argument itself that they're accusing him on the basis of, they can't hold themselves. So he says, he says, you guys are judging me according to the law, but you guys can't live by the law itself. So why are you judging me by that very thing which that you cannot live by? You're as guilty to this law as I am, and so you cannot use this as a way to uh, wage war against me or judge me. One of the things I love uh, greatest about the greatest apologists of our century and our day and time, I talked about, a little bit about apologists about two weeks ago, is that apologists know the biblical text and they know the cultural context incredibly well. The greatest apologists are not those that say, hey, I'm sorry that I know Jesus Christ. I apologize. It's embarrassing, I know. <laughs> what apologists do is they provide a reasoned explanation for the faith in the midst of con- culturally contextual appropriate ways. The greatest apologists know the culture so well that they can turn the culture's arguments against the faith upside down and put them uh, in an embarrassing spot. Not in a rude kind of way, but in a way to kind of say, hey, the very way that you're coming at me is a way that you can't hold out yourself. I think, I think even today, of, I think one of the things that comes at Christianity, the greatest is this issue of tolerance, right? That for Christians to say, hey, we believe in a Jesus Christ who is in the flesh, who has died, resurrected, and that he and he alone provides eternal life, people will say we're bigoted, we're closed-minded, we're narrowed. That we're completely intolerant of other ideas, right? That we're completely unloving of other ideas, What I find fascinating in the midst of that kind of cultural argument is that the kind of tolerance they want is a tolerance that only agrees with what they agree with, right? They're tolerant as long as you don't have a view of absolute and objective truth, right? As long as you actually don't want to push anything or at least have a real conviction, then we're going to be tolerant, right? What a travesty of an understanding of what tolerance is. It's not what tolerance is. It's not what love is either. Uh, I mentioned this book to you guys a couple weeks ago, uh, but Tim Keller's Reason for God, I think, is one of the greatest books today in our current cultural context of seeing an apologist who knows the biblical text, knows the cultural context, and can provide an explanation back to the culture with regard to what they are saying. 
I love the color does in that book. If you've not had that book, if you've not read that book, incredible book to pick up as a resource to be wading through and reading through the summer. Because I know in April, you're probably not reading anything else other than final stuff. So, all right, I realize that. All right, but mark that away. Think about that for the summer, all right? Uh, what Paul will do is he'll push back on cultural arguments and he'll also push back on one civic argument. I want you guys to look, if you will, chapter 24, verses 12 and 13. Uh, Paul is not going to roll over. He's not going to play dead about a couple things. One is cultural arguments. He's going to turn them on their head to show that Christianity can still hold even against cultural arguments against it. And he also does another thing regarding civics in chapter 24, verses 12 and 13. He says, Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. And what Paul does here in 24 is he's going to say, as he comes under accusations that he's causing rioting and dissension everywhere he goes, and that wherever he goes, he just overturns the public order. Paul goes, no, 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 no. That's not what we're doing at all. In fact, they have no evidence for that accusation. One of the things that Paul was really struck by, one of the things that he valued strongly was that Christians should make for good citizens, right? Which is why as you look through the book of Romans, you look through a lot of his pastoral letters, he'll talk about the church coming and praying for their king, honoring their king, obeying the laws of the land. Sure, there are times that you have to disobey the law if it's in direct contrast to what God has called. But by and large, keep your mouth shut, serve well, be a good citizen in the nation is what Paul will say to the church at large. One of the things that Paul is going to hit here with his accusers is they come at the church and come at the Christian faith is to say, no, no, no. The best Christians make for good citizens. And so what Christianity does is it does not overturn society order. Right? It is not against society. It is not against culture. What it's wanting to do is redeem culture for sure, bring about godly change, but it's not wanting to overturn culture. It's wanting to honor kings and, and obey them as best as we can. It's one of the things that Paul will hit. So a couple of things. One, I want you guys to see that Paul doesn't just roll over and play dead, all right? But he's going to push back. He pushes back strategically with cultural arguments and civic arguments. And the last thing I want you guys to see as we close out this morning is what Paul will ultimately do. What he primarily does over and over again, though, is come back to one primary pushback argument, and that's Jesus Christ. He'll hit cultural things. He'll hit historic things, civic things. But what he does over and over again is he comes back to the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Then in the midst of charges and accusations, as he remains calm, cool, and collected, he doesn't roll over. <laughs> he does push back. And if there's one thing that he holds to, one thing that he really wants to put his chips on the table for, it's this issue of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It's interesting. I want you guys to see as we walk through, I'm going to show you guys within each of these court scenes how he comes back to the resurrection over and over again. Notice, uh, looking beginning in chapter 23, verse 6, I want you guys to see the nature of his defense. Paul says, but perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, brethren, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees, and I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. In the midst of all the accusations, in the midst of all the charges, in the midst of all of the discussion, Paul comes back to over and over again, this issue of the resurrection over and over and over. Notice, if you will, chapter 24, verses 20 to 21. Notice what he does here before Felix 20 to 21, uh, or else let these men tell what misdeed they have found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement, which I shouted out while standing among them for the resurrection of the dead. I am on trial before you today, before the Jewish council, before Felix, despite all the different uh, arguments that are going on, all the accusations, he comes back to the issue over and over again of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, also in chapter 26, verse 6, we find, uh, he says, And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, which he reiterates and specifies in verses, verse 23 of chapter 26. And he says that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Over and over again, it doesn't matter what party he's in front of. It doesn't matter the nature of the accusations. It doesn't matter how personal they come at him or how ugly they get. Over and over again, where he puts his chips on the table, where he pushes back primarily is the issue of the resurrection in Jesus Christ. In each of his defenses, there may be verses to the song, so to speak, that have uniqueness and flair. But the chorus over and over again is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is where he puts his chips. This is where he wants to be clear because he realizes the issue that he's under is not personal, but it's with Jesus Christ. The reason why people have responded so strongly is because they have an issue with Jesus. And so he puts the issue back where they have the issue, which is Jesus Christ. Everything else is a distraction, all right? Paul realizes that everything else that comes at him really is is aimed to try to get him away from who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Every other argument, every other accusation, every other charge is to get him to talk about something other than Jesus Christ, and he won't have it, and he comes back to Jesus over and over again. Some of you guys know our dating story when Marcy and I were dating, but I had a few failed, epic failure of DTR moments with Marcy, all right? Uh, One of the ones that was really, for me, the most vivid was we were having this moment where the conversation, again, was not going to the extent in the direction I was hoping, which meant we weren't going to date. But again, I won that battle, all right, which is great, all right? Uh, but um, we weren't, it wasn't looking like we were going to move through dating. Wasn't, we weren't going to get this thing off the launching pad and get going, all right? And we were sitting in her Honda or Accord. For some reason, we were in her car. She was in the driver's seat, which before we ever dated, kind of symbolized the relationship, right? Because I had no power, all right? Um, and so uh, we were sitting there and we were talking, we were discussing kind of things. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of a conversation that, again, was not going where I wanted to go, a bird flies overhead, all right? flying hundreds of yards up in the air and poops, all right? And not only is flying overhead and poops, but poops and flies hundreds of yards down through the sunroof and on my shoulder, all right? On my shoulder, right between where Marcy and I are talking, and it just really figuratively told me how I felt, right? And here's the thing. I felt like the bird was in cahoots with Marcy because from that moment on, I don't even remember what we were talking about. All I knew, there was poop on my shoulder, all right? There's poop on my shoulder, right? I'm a little bit of a clean freak, and so I kind of freaked out, all right? And also, it's incredibly embarrassing. And so, A, I don't remember what we were talking about, and B, I know the conversation never finished, that, at least in that moment, right? It was an incredible distraction that completely got us off the main issue, all right? And I think what our culture does by and large over and over again with us is that as we step out to declare our affinity and a desire to walk with Jesus Christ, our culture flies hundreds of yards above, poops through the, through the moon roof on our shoulder to distract you from talking about Jesus Christ, all right? You like that? I feel pretty good about that. All right, so here's the thing. Let, let me, uh, me kind of illustrate it in a little bit more of a serious fashion for you guys. Uh, if you guys are watching Facebook, if you guys are watching CNN, any kind of headlines, any kind of TV, radio, or anything last week, what was the primary issue going on being talked about last week? Gay marriage, right? Um, interesting that that issue was absolutely dominant the week leading up to Easter, isn't it? Is that, is that at all coincidental? I don't think so whatsoever, Right. I'm not saying that the Supreme Court is out to get Christians, not at all. It's not what I'm saying. But I think in the grand scheme of things, what an elaborate distraction from the conversation as to who Jesus is and the reality and the implications of his resurrection. Let's get everybody talking about gay marriage, right? I'll tell you guys, we as a church are a church that wholeheartedly believes in the sanctity of human life and the rights of the unborn. 
We as a church are also one who believes that the institution of marriage was created by God for a man and a woman, all right? Now, the issue as to how the church and Christians step out into the public arena to talk about the, uh, the rights of the unborn and what marriage is and who marriage can be and how it's to be recognized in the civic realm is a very, very complicated issue, all right? It's not an overly simplistic one. But I will tell you, for us as a church and for us as Christians, let me say this, that however you're going to have a voice on those issues, whether it's within the church on a Sunday morning or whether that's within the cultural arena at large, the voice that you have to have is one that never obscures the primary message that we have. And so for us as a church, you will never hear us or see us, someone walking in the foyer having an issue or a display on abortion or having a discussion in the, in the public context about gay marriage in a way that really distracts people from the primary issue that we want them to hear, which is the hope of resurrection in Jesus Christ. And it is no coincidence that our culture took the issue at large last week and held it hostage on Easter week so that we could have all guns and all attention focused on the issue of gay marriage. That's not coincidental at all. Because what our culture wants by and large at every turn and every facet is to accuse and to bring charges in such a way you're bigoted, you're narrow-minded, you're unloving, in such a way that we will talk about anything other than Jesus Christ. So let me challenge you in the midst of your relationships, let me challenge you in the midst of your own walk with Jesus Christ, that A, if you do not know him, that is the primary issue for you. (laughs) The issue is not abortion, the issue is not gay marriage, the issue is not premarital sex. The primary issue for you, if you do not know him, is Jesus Christ. That he died and that he was resurrected and there is evidence to support both. And so what are you going to do with Jesus? Everything else is peripheral, everything else is rock and roll, and so don't get lost in the discussion and in the controversy, focus on the primary thing, and that's who Jesus is. Let everything else take care of itself because it will take care of itself, but do you know Jesus Christ? If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ, I'll tell you that is where you begin. That's where everything begins. Let me say today can be the day that you can enter into a relationship with the king of the universe who does see your circumstances, who sees you individually, and he's not too busy. In fact, he's not too busy that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who took on human flesh and who died on your behalf so that you could be reconciled to him. And that he rose on Easter Sunday so as to show us three days after the cross that he has power over death and life. And he and he alone provides hope and provides peace and provides joy. And life is found in him. And if you do know Jesus Christ this morning, let me challenge you. Let me say to you, hey, uh, as you step into the public arena, And as you have a voice in culture, as you have a voice with classmates and coworkers and roommates and friends and family, the issue that you want to make primary, the issue that you want to come back to over and over again, the verses of the song may change, but the chorus is always the same. It's about Jesus Christ. (laughs) Everything else will get us to talk about something else, but that's what we come back to over and over again. And it may not be eloquent. It may not be perfect. It may not have all the answers, but our primary defense, our primary explanation, our primary profession proclamation is that Jesus Christ is God, that he died and he was resurrected and that hope is found in him and hope is only found in him. So do not get distracted by the side issues that will try to move you away from that issue because that is the primary one. So my hope for you guys is as birds fly and as they poop that you will stay focused on that issue, all right? Let me pray for us. Father God, we give you great thanks uh, that you are our King of kings, you are our Lord of lords, that you see the very circumstances of our lives, the very things that seem maddening, that seem so frustrating and so helpless. Lord, I thank you that you are the King of kings. There is no higher authority that we have to appeal to, that you're it, that you see it, that you are not busy, that you love us and that you care for us.
that you love us enough to even send your only son, Jesus Christ, who would pay the penalty for our sins so that we can be reconciled to a relationship with you and find what life truly is. And Father, I pray, Lord, that for us who know you as we step into the public arena, as we step into classes, as we step into homes and families and uh, f- circles of friends, Lord, I pray that you'd allow us to be winsome with that message of hope. And that there is one who loves, there is one who sees, there is one who has died, and there's only one who's resurrected. And Father, I pray that we would not be distracted from that proclamation in the midst of all the issues and all the things that are flying around. Lord, may, us, may we have a singular voice because there's only one thing that we primarily know with all confidence and so that you are God and that all of life is found in you. And Father, I pray that you allow us to have our lives more rooted in you, that you'd provide us a greater intimacy with you and a greater willingness and courage to proclaim you because life is found in you and you alone, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.